Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of the Form 3.tech podcast. My name is Kevin Holditch, VP of Engineering for Platform at Form 3. Today I'm super excited that I've been joined by Bojan Zivic, hopefully I said your name correctly, who's an AWS ambassador, serverless AWS community builder and his day job is principal consultant at CMD Solutions. How's it going today, Bojan? Thanks for the intro, Kevin. Yeah, pretty good. Um, just for the listeners' heads up, I'm based in Sydney, so it's the morning now. And for Kevin, it's, I think, close to maybe 10, 11 o'clock at night. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're giving away um, secrets behind the scenes here. <laughs> so um, do you just want to give the listeners a bit of an intro into yourself and um, you know what you, do, what you do in your day job and your experience with sort of being an ambassador for AWS? Sure, absolutely. So... Hey again, everyone. Boyan Jivic. I'm an AWS ambassador, um, serverless community builder, and a principal consultant at a um, <clears throat> at a consulting cloud consulting company in Australia called Mantle Group. My day job consists of working as part of a app modernization practice. So what I do is um, I walk into either legacy or brownfields or even greenfields um, implementations and try to bring what was once. And obviously, this doesn't count for greenfields. But typically more for you know legacy and brownfields. What was once an old way of working, um, or rather, let's just say a monolith, bring it to a microservice and just look at the best path of how to get there. So whether it be cube, whether it be serverless, with some preference towards serverless, we just generally work on creating the right tool at the end of the day that can be managed. Outside of that, um, I moonlight through many conferences and meetups. Um, I'm a conference and meetup speaker. I run the Brisbane serverless meetup as well, something that we revived last year, and that's getting a bit of traction, which is great. And yeah, so it isn't just my day job, but it's also um, some of my personal life. Awesome, and your passion. So you mentioned serverless a few times there, and I think that's what we want to focus today's show on. So I think most people hopefully know what serverless is, but can you just give everyone an explanation just to bring all the listeners up to speed? Sure. Well, it's in the name, serverless. The idea is that serverless is a form of compute. Um, and you can paint that whichever way you'd like, that relies on a point-in-time execution and it doesn't need a server to run in the background. So servers could be, for example, a container that gets stood up and run and executed at a certain point in time or something like a function. So in the case of Lambda functions, where when an event occurs, typically servers can be asynchronous or usually it is asynchronous, you will only uh, execute that compute for that point in time and also get charged for that point in time only as well. Probably the simplest way I could probably describe it. No, I think that I think that's very clear. So I think when I think of serverless initially, I always used to think of Lambda, and I know serverless has probably come a long, long way since there. So how has sort of serverless evolved, kind of over the years? Well, I, I think when we t- typically think serverless, you're right. We tend to lean towards the compute side, but there are quite a lot of other services that are dubbed serverless, like. When you imagine S3, which is the blob storage, um, which is actually one of AWS's earliest um, services, that's technically serverless because all you all you have is a point where you uh, put objects into, get objects from, and delete, but you don't manage the underlying storage. Same for the queuing system, SQS, same with SNS, same with the event system that AWS has, EventBridge. So there's quite a lot. Um, one of the ones that I think people tend to use quite a lot in AWS is also the serverless NoSQL database, DynamoDB. If obviously you're doing um, transactional SQL, relational SQL, um, you obviously wouldn't use NoSQL, but Dynamo is actually huge. 
And what I've seen happen is that it hasn't just been a service after service after service being released. That's been the evolution of serverless, but it's the use cases. They've completely changed. In the past, what we saw was serverless was a means to um, move people away from the typical app structure where you had a web server that hit into a backend somewhere that executed X. So back in the day, it was basically saying like NGINX or Tomcat that was executing a Java app or a Python app somewhere or so on and so forth, right? The modern the serverless at that point in time was basically, all right, I'm going to create a facade at the front that points to, for example, slash create order, and that just hits a Lambda function. And that was what serverless was. Now what we're seeing is serverless is becoming incredibly popular in large-scale parallel data processing, so distributed map. And we do have AWS to thank for that. And typically what we can see now is through some of the services I mentioned, something like EventBridge, you can set a cron task to execute up to 10,000 executions in parallel for a short period of time to get a burst of simulations out the door. What we've seen is, uh, without giving away any company secrets, a couple of companies in Australia that are within the mining sector, um, as well as those that use simulation for whether it be aerodynamics and so on and so forth, they've started to use that because it's cheaper to have a short bursty load that can cost you after a couple of hours, you know, anyway, eight to $10, as compared to a quadruple XL metal graphics instance on AWS, which is just churning through. The biggest change we saw was where someone had gone from AWS Batch. And AWS Batch, as the name suggests, is AWS system in which either you scale up containers or instances to perform a batch workload, and then you scale it down. That scale was quite slow. So what took four, five, six hours, once they had moved it to a uh, distributed map through step functions and Lambda, that only took minutes. Wow, that's quite an improvement. So what type of workloads sort of really excel in a serverless environment? Are there one type of workload you would say that excel over others? Or you mentioned quite a few different use cases there, or is the, or is the use case for serverless becoming quite broad nowadays? It's become broader than it was before. I feel like before everybody was serverless, ah, ETL. It's got to be all the ETL workloads. So if we have object A, we bring it in, we transform it, we dump it. The thing is there have been uh, changes into, into that ETL sort of structure and there's been uh, releases of things like um, Airflow and the like where ETL has now become, I would say, you don't have to rely on a serverless option to do it. Um, one thing that I've found, which is still very popular, has been using serverless for um, CRUD apps, which are always going to be something relatively popular because it, me as a developer, once I create a CRUD app, I back in the day was just a single server. Now I'll have five, six separate different functions that have different paths for execution. So we've seen with um, some of our customers who have e-commerce uh, setups, they'll have slash create order is a separate function to slash update order, which is a separate function to uh, delete order or process cart and so on and so forth. And that separation of duties also means that you kind of spread out that blast radius where damage can happen and will happen. So one of the stories that I can recall recently was uh, we had moved a client to um, something called Strangler Fig Pattern, which is effectively where we took their monolith and only partially moved out um, some functions. And we started off with something light, a bit of an MVP workload. And what we had actually moved was we moved out the uh, cart processing portion of the app because, well, we gave two paths, V1 and V2. If they went V1, it would process through the app itself. V2 would process through Lambda. 
And what had happened was that um, they also had a bunch of APIs that they plugged in to that car processing um, app. Again, not going to give away company secrets, but they used this as a jumping ground for other apps that they had. So effectively, you could imagine like several other e-commerce stores that were connecting to a two-process carts because at the end of the day, processing a cart really just means write this in a database to say its state went from X to Y. Well, the main app died for one of their storefronts, but all the other storefronts continued to use that strangle pattern where they went into an API gateway and just continued to use V2. And that kind of showed that scalability and the, just the general HA nature you can create when you do serverless right. But I think the more exciting one, the one I'm really excited to see now, is that distributed map is seeing like really pushing the limits of serverless in the AWS with that 10,000 executions in parallel. Yeah, I guess you can get scale that's kind of almost beyond comprehension when you start to when you start to use it in in that kind of uh, scenario. So, are there any sort of misconceptions that people have about the types of workloads suitable for serverless? So you mentioned a crud up there. Mm. I think maybe even a few years ago, people wouldn't have considered using serverless for for an application like that. Whereas, I guess nowadays it's more and more commonplace. Are there any other misconceptions you think of where people typically wouldn't use service in, in a scenario, but actually it can, it, can, it can function in that way? Well, what I can think of is I would, I would first look at that once you go to the serverless first approach, you still don't eliminate the general concepts of app creation in the modern world, which is predominantly web apps at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Your front end from a web server changes into a potentially a single page application, right? Your compute layer changes into whether it be Lambda functions or you know the other cloud's equivalents. And your database layer, that may be Dynamo, so for NoSQL, but you also may have a transactional SQL of some sort or relational SQL, for example, Aurora Serverless, that you use for the backend. So that compute and... Um, so all those layers still remain, data, compute, and front, right? I think one of the things that I wouldn't use serverless for would be the Amazon example. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you've seen, but it was, it was several months ago. I'm not sure if it's close to a year, but it was a long time ago, right? Amazon Prime had used ser- uh, step functions and serverless for uh, transcoding and a few various other things to generate their, um, quite a lot of the, what they did, right? Part of that problem was because of the step functions nature, which is you get charged per state machine execution up to after a certain point, it ended up costing more than a monolith. So what Amazon actually did is they went back into container services instead. So for long-running tasks, personally, I believe that um, serverless is not the way to go. And particularly for AWS, you've got a 15-minute execution window. That isn't to say, though, that you shouldn't be combining the technologies. So hear me out. When you're on a container platform like Kubernetes, you need to go all in on Kubernetes, right? So the orchestration, the execution, but you can have a mixture of both. You can have long-running pods or you can have, you know, bursty um, cron tasks or even saying like, hey, native, right? Which is like functions, but on pods. With serverless, you should really take advantage of that cloud environment that you're in. And for any long running tasks, if you're writing serverless and infrastructure as code, use the container platform of choice. So for example, ECS Fargate, which is we'll manage the underlying service for you, but we'll run a container for a X period of time. So you can get the balance of both. So it's still serverless because you don't have to worry about the infrastructure. You can just give it a task definition, can't you? And just tell it to run the container. And funnily enough, it's just a similar sort of pattern as Cube. You've got a task definition, you've got a service for networking, 
And then you've got a bit of magic you can do with it to even scale it up and down in a similar sort of fashion as proper serverless. But for listeners as well, don't forget with Lambda, you can actually push your container to Lambda as well through custom runtimes. So it's not like underneath the hood, Lambda isn't just using micro VMs or containers anyway. Yeah, I think one of the drawbacks of Lambda is that you're limited to, is it 15 minutes of execution and they, and they time out? 15, so yeah. So if you want anything longer running than that, you have to switch to another technology. Mm-hmm. Is that where you'd say it's currently the tipping point for serverless and you should start to think to yourself, is serverless the right way to go if you have sort of long running workloads? Is that the sort of typical? I would say so. Um, because remember, you're getting charged per execution time, right? There is a bit of a point of diminishing returns with serverless, I think, where people tend to go, I'm going to give my service task the most minimum amount of memory because I'm looking at achieving the most cost benefit option and it will scale when it needs to scale to do X, Y, Z, right? The problem with that logic is that the execution time is quite high for that, you know, 128 megs of memory, 256, right? There's quite a bit of tooling out there, for example, the Lambda Power Tools that provide you benchmarks that'll take your um, function and actually test it against various different memory allocations. The higher the memory allocation in AWS Lambda, the more CPU you get allocated as a potential, right? And so there'll come a point where you can allocate a gig or two of memory, for example, to your Lambda function, where the execution time is much lower than 128 megabytes. So therefore, it makes more sense to run at a higher uh, allocation of memory, right? And when you talk about long-running tasks, you shouldn't really be looking at serverless functions in any sort of shape or form as for anything long-running, right? So this is why we like that combined model for businesses where they have both the containers and uh, Lambda, right? The one thing, though, I am always worried about when kind of presenting that model to people is that do you have the team that can manage both? Because developers may be very comfortable with the Lambda and serverless side, but containers may as well be black magic. Yeah. I think one of the one of the technologies people normally reach for is Kubernetes, which can often be maybe overkill for some companies if they don't need all that complexity. Like you already mentioned that mm. ECS Fargate is quite a sort of simpler way, shall we say, to run containers mm. than, than Kubernetes. But I think... Um, there are some options, you even mentioned it earlier, K-Native, where mm-hmm. you can sort of have your own serverless platform on Kubernetes. Do you just want to explain to the listeners a bit more about what K-Native is and what that would, Absolutely. would offer you? K-Native uses the, constru- uh, the Kubernetes orchestration platform to create something or use something called FAS, functions as a service, and a similar sort of thing, um, function that Lambda works in. Uh, you effectively have to have some form of event bridging structure. And I believe it's actually different to your typical Kafka, although there are plugins and things like Kafka that allow you to trigger Knative. And what Knative does is effectively, it'll you provided a, a context, which is effectively a pod with a task that it will run. And once that event gets triggered, Knative will then, through your controller, execute and run a pod in the same fashion or the event-based fashion that Lambda does. And it's a, it's a great tool because, um, A, Google was the one that, uh, I believe, brought out Knative and it's gained some traction in the community. There are other tools as well. For example, uh, OpenFAS, which is one that um, we've played with. We've typically found Knative had a little bit better um, plugin support, but that's only because we had some people who'd used Knative previously. That isn't to say oh, OpenFAS doesn't have it. But yeah, it's just basically functions as a service on Kubernetes. But... 
You've got to remember though, cube means I have long running nodes, therefore I have extended costs and so on and so forth. Where the model does work is when you move away from cloud. If I'm on-prem and I want to have the ability to have a bursty workload without having, shall we say, my consistent overhead for running everything be at its 100% peak. So I've got on-prem like, I don't know, 40 cores and half a terabyte of RAM on a couple of servers, right? Well, Knative kind of means that I have a wide array that I can use very little of or very a lot of just depending on how that scale works. Yeah, would another use case for Knative be if you wanted your sort of platform to be cloud agnostic? Because we start to hear it more and more, especially in the financial space where financial institutions are sort of coming under regulatory pressure not to be locked into single cloud vendors. Mm. So serverless is great and everything, but one of the things it does do if you rely on Lambda and ECS Fargate and all those technologies, as good as they are, it does lock you into the AWS ecosystem or whatever cloud you choose. So I guess with Knative, do you have that advantage that you're more cloud portable? Yeah, I think you are, but I think that's always been the case when people have tried to pitch Kubernetes as well, which is, ah, oh, it's cloud portable, cloud portable. The problem is with that, um, I'd say, statement is that, well, the way you run Kubernetes on Azure, AWS, and GCP via their, you know, the, control, the managed control planes is different. They use different controllers for IM. They use different controllers for managing you know, things like the load balances and such, and even the way they form ingress is different. I think that with the regulations that have come through, because I know it's happening in the UK and it's happening in Australia as well, we have APRA here, which now... I don't read government documents quite often, but I've had to read one recently, so my memory is somewhat foggy because they are full of minutiae and a lot of uh, filler as well. But effectively, they come into the lines of mentioning that you have to prove in one form or another that your platform is um, resilient to failures. Now, that has been painted in the picture of multi-cloud. Now, I am a bit worried with some of that wording coming from you know some of these uh, regulatory bodies because... When you look at where the distribution of um, these cloud vendors are, 90% of the time you'll have Azure in one rack in a, in a data center, GCP in that same data center, but just in, maybe in a different rack. And then AWS is there too. So if we were to say that resiliency you know, is multi-cloud is much more resilient, I'm kind of counter to the point because if you blow up one data center, well, everybody's going to get affected. Yeah, but that'd be one AZ in each cloud though, wouldn't it, in that scenario? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or it just depends on the networking structure. We've had um, recently seen that it's less likely that you're going to have an AZ outage as compared to a poor configuration. In the past, we've seen that with Azure, GCP, and AWS, a poor config went out, it ruined an API, for example, the EC2 API in AWS, and that stopped things from scaling. It's less likely that a data center is actually going to blow up or a main line will get blown up. Yeah, it's more likely they're going to release a bad version of the software. I remember in... um I think it was in twenty the twenty eighth of no, it's the first of March twenty thirteen. Azure had quite a big outage, and it was quite a funny bug because it turned out that someone wrote a bit of code to renew some certificates. And so, um, no, it might have been the twenty ninth of February. Sorry, it was the twenty ninth February twenty twelve. So it ran, and but the person who wrote the code just added one to the year. So it tried to renew the certificates for the twenty ninth February twenty thirteen. That date didn't exist, so it just crashed it. And that, that whole change rippled through, I think it was Azure, and shut down loads of regions. Mm. So the data centers themselves are working, but it's just a software bug because it couldn't take out certificates. Isn't that always the case? It's either certificates or DNS. And I think like half the time it's one or the other. Mm. 
Just one thing, sorry to note on that question you asked earlier. I'm sorry, I didn't quite answer because I kind of went on another tangent. I believe that the answer that Knative or Cube is the best option for, you know, like having this um, you know, platform that can easily go across the multiple clouds and it's easy to transverse. I think that's a bit of a fallacy because containers offer you the same option, right? So if I have my container, it has a specific workload. Even my, for example, uh, Lambda function, it has a specific workload on it, right? To move that compute between the various different clouds on whatever platform you can run it on, as long as you understand what your app does, it's not difficult. Because I think the difficulty kind of stems from, oh, we've now got the same platform of scaling because it's all Kubernetes, right? Well, not necessarily. If I have my function that works fine in Lambda, to commodify that into a, uh, for example, container, I have to expose a port. Then that's 90% of the time what it usually be. Because, okay, cool. Do I have to host it on a web server? Okay, cool. Maybe I need to give it Django because it's a Python app so I can execute that. But I believe that a lot of that kind of communication comes from a lack of understanding of how the app actually works. Because you're just moving compute layer to another option. You're moving the data layer to another option. But the function of its the actual app layer, so the front end or the compute side of it. Well, the actual code itself probably doesn't need to change. It's just, you just wrap it up differently, exactly. don't you? Yeah, there's a lot of adapters for yeah. that as well. I've seen that companies have created, um, not companies, so the community has created like Lambda adapters for uh, things like Fast API, which is effectively just, I have a Fast API app, cool, here's an adapter, now you can dump it into Lambda. I think there are tools that can move a, a Kubernetes cluster from one cloud to another that I've seen out there as well, though. So I think maybe the difference with Kubernetes, although I get exactly what you're saying, is that your kind of logic of how services are going to call each other kind of comes with the move, so you get a bit more for free. Mm. I take what you're saying in terms of the control plane is slightly different, mm. but if you model it all in, you know, CRDs and you know yeah. um, Helm charts, you probably you get a lot more lifted over. If that makes sense. The um, thing is, though, it's like okay, cool. So we're going to go across three different clouds, the major three, because well, I wouldn't want to work, run my workload on Ali Cloud. Um, <laughs> um, you've all right. We've chosen Terraform so we can go for you know a ubiquitous um, infrastructure as code to kind of build out the uh, infrastructure layer. Although that has its variances, so it's not you know uh, agnostic, uh, cloud agnostic. It's just there's no. different ways to do Terraform in Azure, AWS, and GCP. I'm a CDK person myself. Great. So that's one layer. All right. You're right. The CRDs can be moved across. But then the way that load balancers work across the um, three different clouds is different as well. The way that networking works across the three different clouds is different again. I can't use, for example, the VPC CNI, and that's the uh, network interface for that allows um, AWS ENIs to be attached to pods mm-hmm. to be used across the other three, right? I have to use, for example, Maltus or Cilium. So then I have to get very specific in which I actually create things as well. And then comes in cost. That's the one that always worries me. I've seen companies in the past sunken by, we have a great Kubernetes implementation. We're always going to run it. And then their cloud bill is huge. Mm-hmm. They're not doing much, but because they've got Kubernetes and just flat out using everything like crazy with Kube, they end up having hundreds of thousands a month. Yeah, and That's medium size. I've seen some of the larger ones where it makes sense because they're making hundreds of millions or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. They'll have like a $14, $15 million bill but what they're actually doing with the way they're executing Cube makes sense because it's like constant rendering, processing, and transcoding. Yeah, totally. 
Cool. I just want to touch a bit upon uh, security and service computing. Are there any security challenges that you maybe avoid by going serverless or any security challenges that serverless presents? Well, I think somebody's, we'll get a few people our place that Mantle have said it best. It's like security is everybody's concern, right? So once we go serverless, we remove one component, which is the AMI, so the images, the ISO, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So the actual operating system, we don't care about anymore because our serverless platform will manage that for us. So great, we don't really have to consider running, or in the past, we didn't have to consider running a uh, runtime scanning option. So no more antivirus, right? That's changed currently. Um, Now um, AWS and uh, other vendors are providing runtime services to scan your Lambda functions or your functions as they sit in your particular uh, AWS accounts which is great. And the reason why I say that is because once you go serverless, you typically care more about what packages am I using and what what CVEs and what um, versions of my packages, for example, I have, I don't know, maybe my request module is that old that the underlying curl that makes my request module is now, um, this is Python by the way, is now um, what I call prone to remote execution. Mm-hmm. You can definitely still do remote execution on Lambda, but you can't shell in, for example, right? It could be that that module now allows me to run arbitrary SQL. So you can go SQL injections that kind of come in. So you've got to still take that and you've still got to focus on that sort of setup. So it doesn't get rid of all of your security needs, which is no, what no, I no, think no. some people believe. But it does definitely eradicate some layers that you would have to worry about if you're managing sort of the extra layers down though. I, I, I like to look at it as people who think that just because I got rid of my door, no one can break into my house. The reality is you still have windows. Yeah. <laughs> so what's stopping someone from breaking a window? And that's the same with serverless, right? So you move your dependencies now to these considerations. One is the front end. How do I protect my um, ingress? Right, so we've got API gateway. You put something like a WAF, a web application firewall. So you don't remove those concepts from traditional models. You instead rely more so heavily on them because you don't have a lockdown, you know, government compliant, CIS benchmark compliant instance image to consider as like, you know, the be all and end all, right? So you have to think of that, right? Great. I have a web application firewall. I have bot protection as well through my CDN. And then I'm scanning my code in my repos, right? So you take it away from the infrastructure model, you move into the repo model. As I scan my code, I need to have a way to also check for um, code smells. So then you need to bring in tools um, that actually check for, okay, not poorly executed code. What I typically call code smells are things that could be written better or, for example, things that pick up like, why are you writing SQL in your Lambda functions or in your actual functions, user module, and so on and so forth, right? And then comes the final component, which is that, how do I actually execute runtime scanning? And should I actually execute runtime scanning in my Lambda functions? I like what AWS is doing in that concept with their inspector tool. Um, and particularly, um, I've seen some third parties also trying to do that as well. The names escape me, unfortunately. So apologies, feel free to Google. Uh, <laughs> and what I like about that is, is great. I have one tool that's checked my code and thinks it's fine. But what's stopping a bad actor that has access to my account to go in and manually update that Lambda function with whatever arbitrary code that they want. Well, runtime scanning. 
That's a, that's a really good overview you've given there. I think a lot of those sort of techniques you've mentioned probably apply anyway. Like if you've got a web app, you probably need to have a WAF and, and the other things you mentioned. It's just that I think serverless does eradicate some of those extra concerns that you would have if you're managing your own machines, like having to patch the OS, and or even if mm. you've got containers, a lot of people don't think about there's actually sometimes an OS in the container they need to patch, or mm-hmm. all of the you know app get packages you're installing. So I guess the more layers you can remove from that um, dependency chain that you're managing, the less you have to keep updated. Exactly. Plus, you don't have to create a patch manager. Because, I mean, I think um, in the bad old days, I did, you know, I did a bit of Wintel work, as the title was back in the day, Windows on Intel platform work, working on VMs. And uh, all Linux now, thankfully, I've um, given up on my former lover of Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And managing things like WSAS and patch management systems and having outages because I have to, you know, patch things during certain schedules and start things up again, they're still prevalent to this day, even if it's part of something like an auto-scaling group or even a cube cluster. Like, um... Patching Kubernetes can be a very, very, very sweat-inducing activity. And particularly because I have to bring down my nodes, I have to update my um, control plane, I have to hope that none of the APIs that make my current app have been deprecated, and then I have to hope when everything gets stood up that nothing is broken. So I think that's one of the cost-benefit fallacies that people forget with Kube, which is Patching it and some of the uh, uh, changes can be so breaking that it just makes you sweat. So this is why, like, for example, we've seen quite a few customers who've they've begged and begged and begged the cloud vendors, like, please don't deprecate version 1.2.x because we it's still struggle to move to 1.2.x plus one. And I think that's one of the issues with uh, Kubernetes in general. The release schedule is very aggressive, isn't it? Like they kind of release a new version every couple of months. So to stay on top of that you're constantly, constantly on that upgrade, doing upgrade activities on your cluster. I think the, the last point I just want to touch on is uh, if someone out there is looking to sort of get started with serverless, imagine they've got a monolith and they, you know, you mentioned the strangler pattern earlier. I think that's probably a good one to call out for someone if they want to sort of dabble in serverless or try it out on part of their app. Like what patterns or strategies would you, would you tell people? Well, um, for one, I would say have a read of anything serverless written by Martin Fowler. He's got fantastic topics on how and why. For starters, I would also look at AWS's um, serverless and microservices implementations. This is where they'll go into things like Strangler patterns, the uh, facade pattern, when they go into Saga. But particular, I would say look up something called event storming. So this isn't a technology, but it's more of a, a process in which that you look at your monolith and you start breaking down the business functions of it. So this is where we're moving more into the domain-driven design side. And you, once you've broken down your business processes, you break that down even further into finer details of your business process. And then you start using domain-specific groupings. So you group your business processes with a potential you know, data layout, for example. And that'll help you build your microservices. We've done this activity actually recently with um, one of the port clients here in Australia called OMC. And I can say their name freely. We've done a case study with them. And um, we've implemented event storming. Um, a colleague of mine, Daniel Lorenzen, did this. And it was a massive success because we took a .NET monolith and we moved it to Python and it was significantly quicker. So I would say is go through the patterns, go through understanding of what's involved in the breakdown process. It'll help you play with. Otherwise, AWS offers quite a few serverless labs for free. So 
jump on those, have a play, and that should be fine. Awesome. Thanks a lot. That's about all we've got time for today. But before we before we um, call it a wrap, is there any sort of thing you want to give a shout out to? Absolutely. Um, I would want to give a shout out to my own fledgling podcast that I've started recently called State of Serverless. So every quarter we'll be releasing a um, an episode. Uh, I think I might start using Riverside because this has been a great platform to use. And um, one more shout out to just the general serverless meetup community around the world. In Australia, we've got three that run in the Eastern Seaboard and there's several out there that'll be running a serverless event during reInvent, which is happening in a couple of weeks in Vegas. And yeah, shout out to yourself, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Really, honestly, this has been great. Awesome. It's been our pleasure. Thanks a lot, Bojan. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the Take podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to learn more about us, visit form3.tech.